Shoo-wee. Caroline just preached my sermon for me, y'all. That's good stuff. It's so good to be back with you all. If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to start in the book of Genesis again this morning. <clears throat> if you were here with us last week, you'll know that Pastor Doug began a series. It's a four-week series on what's called the Imago Dei, meaning the image of God. And one of the reasons that the Imago Dei is so important, it, it, it really is kind of the genesis of, of who we are and who God has created us to be. And so we're taking four weeks to kind of go through systematically all the, the intricacies of what it means for you and I to be created in his image, what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. Last week, Pastor Doug kind of went through the idea that, that we're actually created, um, yes, in the image of God. And part of what he created us to do was, was to work, right? To, to be creative. And so he's given us each individual passions and gifts and expressions for us to ultimately create for his glory. So artists are able to express certain things that, that bring glory to God, so that make things beautiful, that, that uh, musicians are able to create, create music that expresses God's glory and the way that he has created us. That we as, as, um, as image bearers are called to tend the garden. We're called to work. That, that work isn't a result of the fall. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we kind of think that. It's like, oh my goodness, like work is, work is awful. Do we have to do this? I can't wait till retirement. But the truth is God has created us to, to tend and to work. And he's created us to, to, be, uh, to have creative expressions. All of these things glorify God. Yes, there are frustrations and brokenness in each of these aspects and frustrations because of the fall. But we know that ultimately Christ is redeeming all of these things into himself and that you and I will have uh, beautiful creation and uh, beautiful creativity as well as work into eternity future with Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at um, our value or our dignity. That's another aspect, a second aspect of what it means for you and I to be created in the image of God. Last, uh, this, this past week during kind of a, the, the snowmageddon or icemageddon of 2024, Lauren and I had the chance to watch Jurassic Park, which is just a, you know, a classic movie. And one of the great lines in that from Jeff Goldblum is that life, what? Life finds a way as if, as if that this life was this force in and of itself that just managed to just keep having a, a certain level of ferocity to keep moving forward and finding a way to continue to move forward. As if our, on a molecular level, it's choosing to, to advance in some way, right? Without any type of creative force. Another line that, that Jeff Goldblum in the movie says, he's kind of the cynic of the group, he says that God created man, or God created dinosaurs, God destroyed dinosaurs, God created man, man destroyed God, and then uh, dinosaurs destroyed man, <laughs> right? So he has this kind of this worldview that there is no true, true creator or true God. 
And one of the things that Caroline mentioned in her video is that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is incredibly important, but it's also quite loaded, if we're honest. Many people hold strong opinions and feelings, and much of it depends on your perspective, your upbringing, uh, how familiar you are with Jesus. But my hope this morning, regardless of kind of where you come in this, is to show you some things from Scripture that will challenge us, but that will also encourage us. Because us being created in the image of God is both an incredibly comforting thing, but it's also a very challenging thing. Because it calls us to love even the hardest, most vulnerable people in the way of dignity that they deserve. Because they have an inherent worth. Because I believe that if we truly understand what it means to be born in the image of God, it changes everything about the way that we view ourselves in the world. It changes everything. It's foundational. And that's why I call kind of this truth uh, about it uh, an abiding truth. Because this, uh, this impacts every single aspect of our life, as I hope we'll find out this morning. And the truth is this, that every person has value and dignity inherently because God has created them and God loves them. Every person has value and dignity because God has created them and he loves them. It's not about what we bring to the table that makes someone worthy. It's not about what someone brings to the table can produce that makes them dignified or worthy of respect and honor. So the first thing that, that I want us to see kind of that, that really kind of begins to fill in the, the overarching abiding truth is this, that God has created us in his image with a unique beginning, with a unique makeup, and a unique relationship to him. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and beginning in verse 26. This is something that we'll probably read in many times over the next couple of weeks. But when you get there, say word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. So we see that humanity has, from this very section, has a unique beginning, don't we? Has a very unique beginning. Up until this point, something that Doug made mention of last week is that everything up until this point God has spoken into existence. He says, let it be. But there's something unique about humanity. It's the first time that God says, let us make. There's, there's kind of this, this, uh, this particularly fashioned that, that, that we are as humanity that's different. And so you and I are uniquely fashioned by God that separates us from the rest of creation. That humanity is different because we are uniquely made in the image of God and uniquely fashioned by God himself. And we see this in our makeup, which we see in Genesis chapter 2. Turn, turn the page or wherever to Genesis chapter 2 and we will look at particularly verse 7. 
Then the Lord God formed, notice, notice the verbs. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Notice, he says that the Lord God formed. This is, this is an, a kind of an intimate, intentional relationship. And we'll see this elsewhere in scripture as, as we continue to move forward. But I just want you to continue to notice these things. That it was, it was formed, it was specifically fashioned. And then there was breathing, that God breathed something into us. So we have a unique beginning in that we are set apart from all of creation as God's gem. It was only at the point that hum, humankind, both male and female, were created that God declared his creation very good. Up until then, it was only known, though it was perfect, it was still incomplete and in that it was only good. But we also not just have a unique beginning, we have a unique makeup. And we see this kind of juxtaposition, juxtaposition or two parts here in this chapter, that you and I have a physical makeup, right? That God has formed us from the dust, that we inevitably begin as dust and will, as, as we die, we will end up, our physical bodies will end up as dust as we decay. But that's not the sole part of who we are as humanity. Notice that God, who is spirit, created us in his image both as physical or material beings, but also as spiritual or immaterial beings. You and I as humans are at kind of dichotomous. That's a real fancy word that just means two parts. We have a physical being and we also have a spiritual being that, that is kind of united to make up what it means for us to be humanity. Now, atheists will tell you that there's only the physical or material aspect, that we're merely animals running on instinct that are finely tuned in order that, it, that will keep us alive, in order, basically, life finds a way. But that doesn't make sense of the, the, all the things that we have. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that it doesn't make sense of the fact that each of us have a kind of essentially a common decency or a, a common morality that it's that we don't learn until we start going against what would be the easy way. And so it says, oh, there's, there's something else that goes against my instincts that tells me there's something else other than just my material urges that, that, that's different. It's immaterial. It's a soul, if you will. So the idea that we are not created beings has, been, uh, has kind of been the norm in society as a whole for the last 200 years that was brought on by Darwinian evolution. And, but we see that that's essentially, not essentially, it is a lie. That you and I are created, yes, physically, but we also have a spiritual component that is breathed in by God. Notice that that's what animates man. It's the very breath of life. And it's only at that point, the scripture says, that the man became a living creature. It's the breath of God, the immaterial aspect of us that brings us to fully ourselves. 
So we have a unique makeup that's set apart different than everything else in creation. But we also have a unique relationship with God. Because of our spiritual capacity, you and I have a relationship with God that nothing else in creation does. No other part of creation actively thinks or chooses to worship God. It just does it because that's how God designed it. But you and I, with an immaterial, free, moral, essentially volition, we choose to follow and worship him. So we have this special relationship that's actually seen in Genesis chapter 3. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that, that God actually has walks in the coolness of the, the garden, right? And they have a conversation. Adam and Eve converse with God. We never see anything in all of scripture else kind of converse with God other than spiritual beings like angels, but nothing that's physical. It's said to cry, everything physical is said to cry out to God in his glory, but that's, that's not the same as choosing to worship it. So we have a unique beginning, we have a unique makeup, and we have a unique relationship with God. And so that's the reason that we are different. We're set apart from the rest of creation. So humanity has a unique position and a unique dignity and value to God. And so we see this, turn to Genesis chapter 9. We actually see this play out in our second truth. Remember, our, our abiding truth is that every person is created in the image of God and has value and dignity because God created them and loved them. The second way that we see this is that God esteems or gives higher or special value and particularly sacredness to human life. So chapter nine, beginning in verse, we'll read verses one through seven. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice that's the same uh, admonition that God gave Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is, this is our duty. This glorifies God. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. So even instinctually, all the animals know that we're special. <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the, you know, the, the little brother syndrome. Right? But he says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So everything is subject to us as humanity. Now we're called to be good stewards of it. But he says, and as I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, and I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And again, in verse 7, God re-emphasizes, re be fruitful and multiply. So, and contextually, what's happening here is, if you know the story, there's incredible corruption that, that kind of fills the earth. God chooses to save Noah and his family through the ark. They obediently built the ark and were saved as God wipes out the rest of humanity. 
But after this, God makes certain things clear about what should happen. And the first thing he says that every living thing is subject to you. Eat it at your, your pleasure for your food. Everything is subject to you. It is your dominion. But then he says something very specific about, uh, about mankind, doesn't it? He says, if a beast kills a man or if another person kills another human being, what happens? It says there will be a reckoning for the life of man because God made at the end of verse six, for God made man in his own image, meaning that human life is valued to the, a greater extent than any other type of being, that human life is to be protected, it's to be fought for, it's to be honored because it is a good gift that we're specifically created in his image. Now we see this actually elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is where we kind of find our next truth. We'll see this in verses 13 through 16. This is a Psalm of David, and he says, For you formed my inward parts. Notice again the verbs. You formed my inward parts. This, this requires proximity. It requires closeness, intimacy. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what do we learn from this? It's that God has intricately and lovingly formed and loves each person he creates. God intricately and lovingly forms and loves each person that he creates. So we don't just see this in Genesis. And as we'll see in a little bit, this, this idea is carried even into the New Testament itself. But David uses these incredible words to say, he says that, we, that he is, and ultimately all of humanity, is wonderfully and fearfully made. Wonderfully carries with it, in, in the language of the Old Testament, the idea of having been set apart or unique. That he is, is unique God has created each one of us differently with different sets of passions, different skill sets, different uh, kind of temperaments, obviously, different personalities. And he says that God has intricately woven us together. He's, he's formed us for his purposes and for his glory. God has created each of us uniquely. So notice again the, the verbs that he formed, he knitted he intricately has woven. It's like a tapestry that, that God has, has created and that you are the individual tapestry, the work of art that he has created. And it says not only that he created our, our physical being and personality, but he says that he also has known and created for us our days. 
He knows all of our life, that all parts of who we are. God has fashioned us. He's fashioned you specifically for his purposes. And that means he knows us. It means that he loves us. And what does that call David to do? It says, David says that I can do nothing else but then to praise you for this. When you consider who God has made you to be, and we'll talk about some of the brokenness uh, that, that we experience because of sin, that, that damages us, but, but doesn't delete or remove the image of God in any way. One of the things that it does is it, it should cause us to praise him when we look at ourselves and how he's created us. But what does Satan do? Satan begins to come in and cause insecurity, doesn't he? He begins to come in and he causes jealousy. He begins to come in and he causes pain. And so the first kind of application and and what we do with this message, the first kind of challenge that I have for us is that I want us to consider this image of God and I want us, uh, us to accept this love personally. I want us to accept this love personally. For those that are in here that struggle with the idea of of feeling worthy of love, or maybe you feel less than at different times. Maybe there's some in the room that feel overlooked, that the ones that don't get the mic, the ones that serve behind the scenes, the ones that that just that that rock babies, the ones that that aren't the ones that are getting all the airtime, if you will. The people that, that are doing the things that are unseen and often unthinked. We need to come to know and accept and believe these truths, these truths about ourselves. First John 4:16, it'll be on your screen, says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. As John mentions, it's not enough just to just to know that that God loves us. We must learn to believe it. It's not enough just to to know something on the top of your head. That doesn't affect you. You can say I love you to a person and then in the next moment act viciously towards them. What proves or shows love is that you, you believe it, you walk with it, you let it filter into your heart. It's not just enough to know that God loves, we have to believe it, to live out kind of from that. Now, what, how does that kind of work out? Otherwise, what happens on the other end, out of our insecurities will spring jealousy or self-loathing or self-deprecation on any number of levels. You're jealous of the person that can do this thing better than you can. Or you hate this aspect about yourself, whether it be physical or whether it be a personality trait or whatever, and you don't apply that God has created you the, the way that, that he has designed. And I'm not talking about vices or anything like that. I'm talking about natural, natural giftings and things that, that he has given to us. What ends up happening is we loathe ourselves and therefore we're not dignifying what God has truly given to us. 
And so when we do that, we see ourselves and we see others incorrectly. So we must learn to accept this love that God has for us personally. So yes, we are broken and there are individual expressions of that brokenness in each of us. Some of us struggle, struggle with anger. Some of us struggle with, with sexual temptation. Some of us struggle with, with any number of things. Some of us struggle with uh, like who, the, who we are specifically attracted to. And to those things, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me because he is redeeming us in himself. If Jesus is the perfect image of God and the way that Jesus has ultimately, uh, that God has created us, he is the perfect image of what we as humanity are being recreated into if we trust in him. And so we must first accept this love personally. But the second thing that I want us to do and consider is that we must pursue this love outwardly. We must pursue this love, the dignity, the value, the worth outwardly. And unfortunately, we as humans are horrendous at this. (laughs) Absolutely horrendous at this. Massive atrocities have occurred even in the 20th and 21st centuries because of the rejection of this idea that people are made in the image of God or certain people are less than human. That was one of the things particularly that white slave owners would kind of calm themselves with is that they considered African-Americans subhuman. And so they didn't have to treat them with the value and worth and dignity that they inherently deserved. And that's wrong. And so we can convince ourselves, Satan can convince us of any number of things. And so we're going to, but we're not called to see as the world sees. 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning the way that we are naturally born to see people, with our natural prejudices, with our, our natural values of, oh, this person can bring me something good in return, so I'm going to treat them better. That's something James talks about. But he says, we regard no one according to the flesh anymore because we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but he has totally transformed us. And therefore he's given us different eyes to see. Now this is hard, but that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, this verses 10 through 12, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. He has schemes or ideas that he loves to implant and tempt us with. One of them is this. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, pow- the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we know from Ephesians chapter six, that people, no matter how different no matter how much they may disagree with us, no matter if they live a different lifestyle that we would consider sinful, they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. So let's consider for a moment um, where in our context we might've failed at this mandate. One of them in the areas is that in our society, racism is still a huge issue and racism is against 
the very idea that every single person is created in the image of God and is worthy of value, dignity, and love. Dr. John Hammett says this, I think he's quite right on this. Evangelical Christians have done well in championing the dignity of the unborn. And I do believe that. That is a great atrocity of of our time. But he says they have not done well in treating their enemies with respect to those who bear God's image. Islamic terrorists, abortion rights activists, those promoting the rights of homosexuality. Even these persons are creatures made in the image of God and deemed by God as worthy of respect in how we speak to them and how we treat them. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road in the the public display of this mandate. This includes, as we kind of go further into this, this includes how we as a church and as a society treat the elderly. Even though they most, they, every person comes to a point that they are no longer able to produce something, it doesn't mean they're not worth loving. They're not worth valuing. They're not worth caring for. It also includes those persons with special needs, whether those needs are physical, mental, or emotional. It includes the foreigner. It includes the refugee. It includes the person voting for the other political party. It includes the candidate that you dislike, the person who is addicted to drugs, or the person that is addicted to alcohol. The image of God and everyone being being born in his image is why both abortion and euthanasia are both violations of God's design and his order. But we ourselves violate this order when we choose to manipulate, when we choose to bully, when we berate people when we're angry, when people are abused or enslaved, whether online or in person. And so this is why we must choose to accept this mandate personally, to know and to love that God has created us in his image and he loves us uniquely and specially. But each person is also worthy of that. But it's also why we pray for, love, and welcome the mothers and fathers feel like abortion is their only option. We welcome them here. We love them. It's why we must rebuke racism in all forms, especially in ourselves. It's why that people, quite frankly, should be compensated fairly in their workplace, that employees should be given time to rest and should be treated with respect. From the custodians all the way to the executives, to the bosses even. When we, in our minds, think people are subhuman, whether that's someone that's hurt us or someone that we perceive as against us, then we're committing the same sin. And God has called us to to repent of that, turn from that, and turn back to him. So my challenge for you this week is this to love someone hard this week. And I mean, not just like exceptionally, like I'm gonna squeeze you really hard. It means that someone that is difficult for you to love, someone that may be annoying or someone that it's really easy for you to think is subhuman because maybe they've hurt you or something like that. Maybe that form of love is by praying for them in a positive way, not praying that God would strike them dead or something like that, right? Maybe it's, it's choosing to, to pray for the political opponent that you just despise. It's not calling people names or anything like that. Reach out and connect with someone that you normally don't connect with. 
Because after all, this is what I conclude with. In 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Know, beloved, that there is grace. We all are imperfect in this. But what we are called to do is we no longer have eyes and hearts that are flesh or of stone. When Jesus teaches us something, we repent of it, believe and trust what he says, and move forward as he calls us to do. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you challenge us and that the implications of the Imago Dei are enormous. I pray, God, that this is helpful, that this is encouraging, that the person in here who feels less than knows and knows and knows that God is for them, that he loves them, that, he is, that they are valuable to him, and that they are valuable to us. Help us, God, to live out of that. Help us to treat others with the dignity and love and compassion that, that they deserve. God, we, as you did, help us to pray for our enemies and to remain silent in the face of, of persecution. Help us to love in a way that is totally otherworldly, supernatural, that is only given by the Holy Spirit. So form something within us that is totally different. We thank you that you have loved us first. I thank you that when we fail, there is much grace for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.